But I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3, and we'll finish off chapter 3 today. Um, So I want to read from verse 14, though I'm only going to look at the last uh, three verses, but just set the context a little bit. we pick it up at the... Remember, Adam is uh, Adam and Eve have eaten of the forbidden fruit. And God has found them, and they're full of guilt and shame. And, uh, and the Lord comes with curses uh, upon the serpent, the woman, and then the man. And uh, that's what we're going to read in verse 14. But I want to focus on verses 22 to 24 uh, at the end. So verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you, you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we come to think in your word, again, help us to understand it and to meditate upon it, and to extract from it all the blessing that you would have for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been going through the book of Genesis, these first three chapters, and uh, we've been laying foundations, I think, for the rest of the Bible. Because these chapters lay out for us the problems that mankind faces even today. Uh, There are some great truths there. Man is made in the image of God. That he is made for relationship to God. To bring him glory. uh, And to enjoy him forever. Uh, And yet, under the influence of the serpent, he decided to doubt God. Trust his feelings. 
and do what was forbidden by God in eating of the fruits. And thus the the covenant relationship that had been established by God in in his grace uh, was broken, resulting not only in the act of sin, but in their personal guilt and shame. Remember how they immediately felt themselves to be naked. They wanted to cover themselves up and they wanted to hide from God uh, as he was walking in the cool of the day. It's an indication of the the guilt and the shame that they felt having uh, ignored uh, God's words. Now it's important that we've worked through this because uh, we'll never get truly to a solution to our problems in our current situation unless we get to the nature of the problems that we face. And if we don't get this part of the Bible, then frankly we just don't get the rest of the Bible. We won't understand it. And the best that people can do, it seems to me, is uh, when they don't get the initial chapters, they just resort to a kind of moralism. If you're a good person, then you'll go to heaven. Which uh, is not the gospel. It's not the message of the Bible. You need to understand that uh, man is, is now sinful and has inherited sin from that very first sin. And uh, we need a solution to it. Well, I want to just come to these last three verses, um, uh, which will round us off on this section of, of the Scripture, which says this, Then God's, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand, and take also from the tree of life and eat, and live forever, and dot, dot, dot. So it kind of doesn't quite finish the sentence. Uh, Then Moses continues, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And this passage, I think, just uh, completes the final act of God dealing with the sin of Adam and Eve. Um... With this uh, momentous moment in verse 23, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden. And the verb form there, for those of you who might be interested, is very intensive. It feels more like he's saying he threw them out of the Garden of Eden. And it's more than simply that there's a change now to the geographical location of Adam and Eve. Um, there, there are other things that are going on here, and it's those other things I want to just examine with you. Um, and, and following through on the, the symbolism, and the meaning of the symbolism that's, that's here present in these final few verses. Now, remember, I'm not saying here that this is a mythical story with a, a heavenly meaning or something like that. Uh, we're saying this is a real story, real events, real things here. But the things have symbolic significance for what is to come. And, and the state of mankind. So three things to think about this morning, as is my habit, it seems, and most preachers' habits. Three things to think about. Uh, firstly, I want to just talk about this idea of the knowledge of good and evil again. Uh, it seems to be a noteworthy phrase, uh, and it's come up uh, a few times as far as God is concerned. You'll know that he's, God has used that term bef- before. Um, it's... 
attached to the, the tree that's placed in the garden. So verse 8 and verse 9, God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord made to spring every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So these two trees are, are present in the garden. It's this beautiful picture, isn't it, of uh, a garden that's full of all the good things that they can enjoy, uh, Adam and Eve together. And these two trees are picked out, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is noteworthy because it is the centre of a prohibition, uh, something that God forbids Adam to do. Verse 16, here's the blessing. Uh, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but, here's the warning, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. So there's a warning there. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You could enjoy enjoy everything in the garden, but not this tree. And God, as it were, enters into this covenant with man uh, to obey and continue to live and to enjoy all that God has, has given in this garden. But disobey and you'll die. And so the tree becomes, this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, becomes this place of, of testing, if you like. It's not that there's anything magical about this tree, or the tree of life for that matter. It's, what matters about it is God has pointed it out and said, you shall not eat from that tree. It's like he's put a little fence around it and said, don't eat from that tree. Stay back. But of course we know that it all goes wrong. Uh, Eve is uh, gets into a, 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 you know, a fuddle, brain fuddle, uh, as she's thinking about this tree, and and the serpent starts speaking to her. He, she is deceived and tempted, and before they know it, both Eve and Adam now have eaten from the tree that God has prohibited them to eat from. Why is it called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Um, there's a great deal has been written about it. Uh, and we've touched on it in the past or in, in the last few weeks. Well, we've said that it's not merely about Adam gaining information about what is good and what is evil. Um, he actually already had that. We've said that already. He, was, he knows what good is because God has put him in the garden and he's enjoying fellowship with God and he knows what good is. He also knows what evil is uh, because he's been told not to eat from that tree. And so t- to disobey God is to, be, to act evilly. Uh, so he knows the information already. But as you and I know, I think, uh, there's more to knowledge than simply information gathering. Um, we would do so much better in our education system if people understood that. It's, it, education is not just about gathering information, is it? And gaining knowledge is more than simply information. But it comes from this idea that the people, uh, when you have knowledge, you also have wisdom and you have experience. And just give me just one example from Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 19. It speaks of Moses' children. 
And uh, Moses' children are described as those who have no knowledge of good or evil. I'm not sh- I don't believe it means that they don't have information about what is good and evil. It's just that they have not grown up. Uh, experiencing consistent obedience to to Moses and to God, and that they have uh, therefore not learned the wisdom of of what it means to uh, what good and evil actually is. Um, so, gaining not the knowledge of good and evil is a phrase that is used to mark the point where somebody uh, has gained the wisdom of experience. The experience that Adam was, that Adam needed to gain, it, with consistent obedience to God's, um, and it has to be this way. He doesn't have to fail to gain this wisdom. He simply has to be consistently obedient and grow in wisdom. That's how Jesus was described. Luke chapter two, verse fifty-two. Do you remember he grew in wisdom and stature with God and men? Uh, not because he failed and he learned what sin was but because he learned what it means to live a consistently obedient, faithful life. And so Adam has this uh, task that he's been given. And he's to, to be faithful in co- uh, continuing this task, carrying out the mission to work and to keep the garden, not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, and growing in wisdom. Growing in knowledge, knowledge of good and evil, not through sin and failure, but through consistent obedience. Now, this maturity is what one would hope your children would grow up into as they grow up. You know, you hope that your children make good and wise decisions about life. Good decisions to follow parents, good decisions to follow God's words. And so we can understand, I think, why it is that the tree was, is described as a place of decision for Adam. It's a point of passage to maturity. Uh, Adam was continually faced with this decision. Am I going to eat or not to eat? Would he obey God or submit to God? Would he listen to temptation? Or would he follow the path of moral autonomy? I'll do my own thing, thanks very much. And that's really at the root of every temptation, isn't it? I will declare... uh, Will I declare God to be God and submit to his will? Or will I declare that I am God and I will do what I will? And it's perhaps no surprise then that God says, with, I think with a degree of irony, so verse 22 of chapter 3, he says, Behold, a man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Of course, he's only a creature, so he can't be like God in any fundamental sense. But he can, in sin, try and set himself up as a god. Doing his own thing. Setting himself up like one of us. You see the irony in this? God is saying, ironically, here's man trying to set himself up as a god like one of us. 
And it's in this kind of state, ironically speaking, that he has this knowledge of good and evil, not by living in obedience to God, but actually living in disobedience. A disobedience that seeks to build an alternative authority for life. I will be my own God. I will run my own life. I will decide what is good and bad for me. I will do my own thing. Friends, that does not seem like a a very modern attitude that God is pointing out. That we think of ourselves as autonomous, self-made men and women, doing our own thing, making our own decisions, without reference to God. And today we call that freedom. But as we shall see, it's not freedom at all. It's actually a disaster. So knowledge of good and evil. Uh, but let's secondly, let's revisit this tree of life. Let's think about the tree of life for a minute. And there's this other tree, the tree of life. And like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of life stands for something. Unlike the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there's no recorded prohibition from eating from it. Uh, someone did ask me a couple of weeks ago, did Adam actually eat from the tree of life? Um, before the fall. I should say that uh, theologians have fallen on different sides of this. Uh, Calvin, John Calvin in the 16th century, uh, Institutes 4, 14, 18, if you're interested, <laughs> uh, thought Adam must have eaten from the, garden of, uh, from the tree of life. Jonathan Edwards, uh, the great American theologian, though technically still a British subject, <laughs> just thought I'd point that out, um, thought that he did not eat from the tree of life. So, two great theologians of the past differing on this this question. Um, People like Edwards, they they think this way because uh, verse 32 uh, is phrased in a particular way. Um, And there's a word there also. Look at the... uh, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat. It kind of suggests that he hasn't done it before, but he's maybe about to, or he might want to do it in the future. So that's, they've suggested that uh, maybe Adam didn't eat from the tree of life beforehand. Uh, however, I, I think because God didn't prohibit eating from the tree of life, um, it seems to suggest that he could have, and I rather think that he, he did, but I'll leave that for you to decide for yourselves. Uh, I don't think a great deal hinges on that question. But what did the tree of life stand for? What was it symbolic of? Well, God pointed out this tree... And it was to be a constant, tangible, experiential reminder of life. Now, not simply the life that God had breathed into man in chapter 2, verse 7. Remember, he formed him out of the dust and breathed into him life. This is about life that goes even far beyond that. This is about a life that is yet to be received by Adam. Uh, So do you see how this works? Um, They were to enjoy the Garden of Eden with God and to honour him in obedience. And every so often, perhaps, they were able to eat from the tree of life. When God was there, and they would be reminded that God has for them more than they already had in the Garden of Eden. It's... uh, it's a reminder of, to Adam and Eve 
of the more yet more blessed life yet to come. That's why theologians down the ages have called the tree a sacramental tree. Because it seems to have functioned like a sacrament. Um, eat the sign and receive a foretaste of the thing that's to come. It's much like we share the Lord's Supper. There's much we can say about the Lord's Supper. But one of the things it reminds us of is that the, is the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus and looking forward to his return in glory and the life that we're going to have with him. So we eat the bread and the wine because it reminds us of the glory that's yet to come. It's one of the aspects of that, that uh, supper. And the tree of life, I think, functions in a similar kind of way. And we know that this is what the tree of life represents because it appears at the end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 22 in the city of God, the, the great temple of God, uh, when all things are done, when all evil is dealt with, this picture of this new Jerusalem, a new temple, and God is the source of all goodness and love towards his people, and the trees are there, uh, symbolizing life, always in bloom, always bearing fruit, continually supplying goodness to the people. And Adam and Eve could have had all of that if there had been no sin. But instead, because of the sin, God now takes steps to bar his way to the tree of life. You see, Adam loses the right to access to the tree of life and to eat from it. In other words, the loss of access to the sign is symbolic of the loss of eternal life. To Adam. And in the end, he will expire. He will die. From now on, the way to this tree of life is barred. They are separated from God, the God who gave them life, and from the sign and symbol of that life and the future glory. And the awful reality will one day dawn that they're going to die. Isn't that a tragedy? And it's a tragedy that's been played out before us every single day. All of it, in all of us. I'm sorry to say this, but every day that you look in the mirror, you'll see that wrinkle getting a bit longer. Or you'll see a few more grey hairs. Or a few fewer hairs like me. And your body begins to, you know, it moves a bit slower. There comes a point where, uh, you young people, you don't know this yet, but you, know, you get to a point where your body starts moving a bit slower, get into your 30s, and things get a bit more painful and difficult. And old people are always talking about their ailments, aren't they? <laughs> What's troubling them? <laughs> and this is, this is a sign of aging, isn't it? It's a sign of that death is coming. It's, uh, it's funny to think about, but it's, it's actually a serious issue, isn't it? Death is coming. And you see this in our friends, and our neighbours, our family members. You see, all, all these are signs that God has lost access to the tree of life, and therefore is consigned to the miseries of this life. And inevitably, we will die. 
One other very important observation is this, that man cannot force his way back to the tree of life. Did you notice that? Uh, you see the guard that is set at the entrance uh, to the, the Garden of Eden. He's, he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam couldn't get there if he tried. And it's important to note this, because one of the things that we observe about mankind is that uh, mankind is incurably religious, aren't they? Wherever you go in the world, people are religious. They, they far, follow some kind of religion. And uh, you look at every religion apart from Christianity, and you see people trying to, trying to as it were, work their way back into the presence of God. Uh, you know, if I do enough good works, if I if I go to church enough, or I do enough religious activity, uh, if I go through all these pillars or do whatever it is I need to do, then somehow I can get back into God's good books, and I will have eternal life. And all of this is, from a biblical perspective, all of this is are, are really attempts to get back to the tree of life. This is how the Bible would describe it. Desperate attempts to get back to the tree of life. But they can never do it. Because that way is forever barred. Because Adam sinned and disobedience is now the norm. And it, it opens up for us a question. Is there another way? We'll hold that thought as we come to the final point. If you're a Christian, you know the answer to that. But, but let me just tease it out for you <laughs> a bit more. Um, here's my final point. The garden's like a temple. Does that sound a radical idea? The garden is like a temple. I want you to just to imagine for a moment, uh, not being next to Adam and Eve as they're going through this, but now list, being amongst the Israelites, listening to Moses' writings being read out. Moses telling the story. So here's here are the Israelites. They are not in Eden, but they're in, in the desert. And they are traveling from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. And Moses is telling the story of Adam and Eve. And they're already experiencing the fact that God in his grace, read read Exodus chapter 1, God in his grace has heard the cries of his people and has come to save them. And so he's leading them out from slavery to the promised land. God is already acting in grace. This is an outworking of the covenant of grace now. Where God is saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And he graciously acts to save them. Not a covenant of works, as was with Adam, but now a covenant of grace. Where instead of man trying to get to God, now God comes down to man. And seeks to save him. And to mark all of this, think about the Israelites again. To mark all of this, God gives them a tabernacle. Do you remember the story of the tabernacle? You read the book of Exodus, and one of the striking things about the book of Exodus is the first 20 chapters are are rip-roaring narrative stories. And then the second half is, is, is a few laws and a lot of detail about the tabernacle. 
how to make it, a few chapters on that, and then description of how it was actually made. And it goes on for about 20 chapters, maybe not quite as many as that. And uh, it tells you something, there's something significant about the, t- the tabernacle. What would they do with the tabernacle? Well, wherever the camps, as a people, they would put the tabernacle in the middle of the camp with the exit facing east. And then all the, the tribes would camp all around, 600,000 men plus their families, uh, all camped around in their 12 tribes in order. So always, always a very orderly camp. And at the centre is this tabernacle. But only certain people could enter the tabernacle. This tent is a portable kind of temple, if you like. It was guarded by the Levites. Only the Levites could enter into the tabernacle. And the people would bring their offerings to the entrance to the tabernacle. And then the Levites would take the the offerings in and would uh, make the offerings. And once a year, the chief priests, initially Aaron would go into the Holy of Holies, into the very centre of the tabernacle, to the sacred place, and bringing the blood, as it were, of the sacrifice, which he would scatter over, and in the, in the, in the, in the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. Remember the, that very ornate box with the Ten Commandments in it, and the rod of Aaron, and uh, a jar of manna in it. And it's all covered in gold. And they would scatter their blood and offer a sacrifice for his own sins and for the sins of the people. And what was on the what was on the curtain that separated access to the Holy of Holies? Well, embroidered on the curtains was cherubim, these heavenly angels, embroidered on the curtain. And then as he went through into the Holy of Holies and faced the, the Ark of the Covenant, on the ends of the Ark of the Covenant, facing inwards, were two golden cherubim, guarding, as it were, the Holy of Holies. And you see the symbolism of the temple, of the tabernacle, is that for one person one time a year at least somebody could go into the holy place past the candelabra that symbolic tree of life to go into the holy of holies and make sacrifice now if you're an Israelite knowing all of that about the tabernacle and then you hear this story about Adam and Eve and the garden of Eden catch your attention let me suggest a couple of things one is the exit to the east the tabernacle always faced east you had to go through the east gate east side of it but here the garden of Eden is Adam and Eve are cast out of the eastern side and then the the guard of the cherubim guarding the way to the tree of life, preventing access to Eden. Like the Levites who stopped the people getting into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And the Israelite might say to himself, or herself, our tabernacle is a bit like Eden. And you think of all the other ornate things, all the pomegranate carvings and everything that 
uh, and, and embroidery that's all around it, suggesting you know, a garden-type motif. They might think, well, here's the tabernacle. It's, it's a bit like a little Garden of Eden. But now it seems that at least somebody is able to get in to the Garden of Eden, to get access to the Tree of Life. And I think a bright, faith-filled Israelite would say, would say God seems to be doing a, something great amongst us as he is saving us from slavery. It's like he's saying that there is a way back to the Tree of Life. And he's doing it in picture language, in the tabernacle. And if you follow the story through the Bible, you'll see that the the story of the Bible, uh, of the tabernacle, becomes the story of the temple. And then a great moment comes when the great curtain that is in the temple, again with the embroidered cherubim, uh, is, is hung up there. And suddenly it's torn in two. Do you remember when that was? When was the curtain torn in two? That's when Jesus died on the cross. Matthew 27, 50, 51. Jesus cried out again and with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit and behold the temple, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. You see what Matthew's saying? He's saying that the cherubim have been pushed aside through the saving work of Jesus Christ. God the Son has opened up a way into the Holy of Holies. And through that work, access to the tree of life has been found. And that's why I think Jesus can say to the thief on the cross, remember there's one of those thieves on the cross, uh, where he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. The Greek word for Eden. Today you'll be with me in paradise, in Eden. And that's why Jesus can say to people, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Friends, we study these chapters of Genesis to lay some foundations. And we've needed to do so in order to understand where we are today and how we got here. We've needed to understand how the relationship between man and God has been broken, which is the root of all our problems. But we've also done so in order to provide some dark contrast so that the brightness of the glory of the work of Jesus Christ becomes clearer. So that you and I will understand that the most important thing we can do with our lives is simply now to place it in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he may give us life and give us access into the Holy of Holies, to the tree of life. That he is the life giver. And so when your body breathes its last as it will, one day, you too will enter into paradise where Jesus is. And you will enjoy the fruits of the tree of life with him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the glory of your saving work. So undeserved for all our sin, and yet there is a way to the tree of life through Christ. And Father, we pray that you'd help us to find it. And if there's any here today who have not yet realized that they need Jesus Christ, I pray that you'd help them to see it. 
For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.